Hi folks, and welcome to White Collar Week. It's the isolation that destroys us. The solution is in community. Today on the podcast, we have Brian Cuban, author of the book, The Addicted Lawyer, Tales of the Bar, Booze, Blow, and Redemption. If Brian's last name sounds familiar, it's because yes, he is billionaire Mark Cuban's brother. But believe me, that's about the least interesting part of Brian's story. Brian and I connected on so many levels as former lawyers, although Brian did not lose his law license, the madness of alcohol and drug addiction, body dysmorphia, eating disorders, and then finally, a newfound peace in the rooms of recovery. Brian is clean and sober for over 14 years. So coming up, Brian Cuban, the addicted lawyer on White Collar Week. I hope you will join us. Hello, and welcome to White Collar Week, podcast sponsored by Progressive Prison Ministries, the world's first ministry serving the white-collar justice community. I'm Jeff Grant, co-founder and your host. I served almost 14 months in a federal prison for a white-collar crime I committed when I was a lawyer, so I know that it's the isolation that kills us and the solution is in community. So let's get started. Hi folks and welcome to White Collar Week. We have a very special episode today, we have Brian Cuban. Brian is an amazing guy. Uh, I read his book over the weekend, The Addicted Lawyer. I'm going to plug the book right away, Brian. Right from the outset, I'm going to plug the book, The Addicted Lawyer, Tales of Bar, Booze, Blow, and Redemption. And um, I'm just going to say a few things from the outset. The first thing is that I really did not want to read this book. Okay. I was. I, I was afraid to read the book because I was afraid I would identify too much with it. And I did, by the way. Um, so I'm kind, of, I'm kind of pissed off at you for two reasons. The first is that you can write a book better than I can. Oh, I got that. <laughs> okay. And of course, I've never written a book. So the fact that you've written two is really amazing. And the second is, it's like being in a recovery meeting. Um, for those of you who've never been in recovery meeting, uh, both Brian and myself, we've been in thousands of them. And sometimes someone tells your story, tells you hear someone else tell your story. And that's what happened with me in this book. And of course, I've watched some of your, um, some of your speaking gigs and things you have online. So Brian Cuban, welcome to White Collar Week. We're so happy to have you. I'm honored to be on, Jeff. Thank you for having me on. Mm. Um, I'm reading the book and I'm reading passages from it from my wife. And you know um, that what we in recovery, if you walk into a recovery room, we're laughing. People were laughing. And, and so I'm reading some of the things in your book and I'm laughing out loud and I'm trying to explain it to my wife. And she, and, and by the way, I met her in recovery. So we, we, it's, it's, it's not like she's, she's not, Fully, uh, fully indoctrinated. And as I'm reading it to her, she says to me, that's not funny. That's sad. And I'm, it got me thinking about my whole life, Brian, and like how I haven't really known the difference between funny and sad and how I'll, I'll conflate those things. Sure. But there's also a difference between, you have to remember, when I first walked in the rooms and told my story, I I found no humor in it, all right? But uh, when you become a storyteller, there's a big difference between uh, funny and sad. Uh, I don't, my goal is to engage people. And I've had people, it doesn't happen often, I've had people say, I'm offended that you find humor in, in this. I, and I, my response is, if I can't find humor in my own journey, I'll, you know, I'll implode. So people look at it from their own lens. The, uh, the, the thing is, is that the, uh, the identification that I had immediately with your story, and there's so much of it I identified with, mostly it came from the fact that I thought that my story was unique. You know, so even though I've been in 9,000 AA meetings or 9,000 other recovery meetings too, 
I still think that those little stories are unique to me. So how is it that you picked and chose? How did you curate the thousands of stories you could have told and, and, and then turned it into a book? Because you probably left more on the cutting room floor than you actually told. That, that's a great question. And the first the first thing I had to distinguish was between lessons and salaciousness. Mm. Okay, so there were many, I have many, many stories. Is a story hurting somebody? Mm. Is a story just salacious gossip? And so I went through those kind of analysis. I basically just put together snapshots of my time not in recovery. And you remember as much as you could and you look at pictures remember more. You say, oh man, yeah, that happened. You talk to people. I talked to people that I partied with. Did you remember when you did this? No, I don't. Okay. But now I do. <laughs> but again, the goal was isn't to hurt anyone. Mm-hmm. The goal is because I have ex-wives. I don't want to hurt my ex-wives. I have stories, but the goal wasn't to hurt them because mm-hmm. they were all in part of my journey of addiction. And so unwittingly, and uh, so I look for the story. Is the story salacious or does it have a lesson? And is it hurting somebody? Did you feel like you needed your ex-wife's permission to say anything? Did you or, 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 or your brothers or anyone or your parents? I, my family. I made sure that uh, my family was on board it's in terms of uh, in terms of ex- in terms of former relationships. As you know, when we make amends in the program, it, the, the goal isn't to tell someone something so I feel better about it. Uh, I've had conversations with them after the books come out. Mm-hmm. Come, but uh, no, I didn't look at it from that standpoint because people move on with their lives. And none of it, uh, none of their names were used. And so they would be the only ones who knew, right? That went through this, but my family, yeah, I was much more circum. I was much more careful. For instance, the story about trading uh, Mavericks tickets for cocaine. Yeah, uh, I didn't tell that story for probably eight or nine years mm-hmm. uh, before it went in the book because I didn't want to embarrass my brother and embarrass my family. But it got to the point where you get to a point where it's not embarrassment; it's just a story, right? Yeah. People move on. I'm in recovery. If I had told it a year in a recovery, it would be different than telling it 10 years into recovery. Yeah. And so you and learn you you learn how to make these new figure out these nuances as a storyteller. Well, did your family know on some level or did you discuss with them that this is a, a career path, a help part of your helping profession? This this is a path that you're going on. This you're not dabbling in telling your story. This is this is something you're making a commitment to, and it, it's got an actual business plan to it. Somewhat, you're 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 out to make a, an impact. We never had to have that discussion because they watched the process. I'm very close with my brothers. Mm-hmm. They live walking distance to me. They saw the process unfold. We're connect. We talk. We're connected on social media. Mm-hmm. They know when I'm speaking and when I'm writing. So we didn't have to have that discussion because they were an integral part of my journey. You know, where, where, where I'd like to start, if it's okay with you, um, because your first book was about um, eating disorder. Yes. And I haven't read the book, but I've heard you speak about it. Yes. Um, and I, I suffered from bulimia for 25 years. And I've never talked about it with another man. This is actually the first time that I would ever talk about it with a man. So this is uncharted for me. I don't know where we're going to go with it. I appreciate your vulnerability. But the way it has come up um, is that in, um, in, the, in recovery rooms, usually women will talk about it or it's not usually but they if it's going to be talked about it it will be by a woman and i don't really want to reach out across the male female border too much and engage with women too much on something that is intimate i'm I'm that intimate because 
it's a great place of shame for me. It's, it's, it was the most difficult, shameful, private place I've ever been. Here's what I learned from, here's what I've learned, Jeff. Uh, bulimia, which traditional is binging and purging male. Mm-hmm. Bulimia, binging and purging female. Shame, shame. What is different is the stigma. So I've, I have discussions with women about eating disorders quite often. Um, what, how long were you a, uh, uh, say, a binger and purger? Because that's, that's what I was. Over two decades. Over two decades. It started uh, my freshman year at uh, Penn State back mm-hmm. in 79. I began binging and, pur- and purging. And I also developed what is known as exercise bulimia as well, which is obsessive compulsive exercise for the primary purpose of offsetting calories. So I was dealing with two eating disorders at a time when uh, people weren't talking about eating disorders for men or women. In 1983, the wonderful singer Karen Carpenter passed away. And she passed away from complications related to anorexia. And that kind of brought eating disorders into the pre-digital national spotlight. Mm -hmm. But it also cemented the the stereotype of, of it as a woman's disorder, a female disorder. I didn't know what uh, bulimia was. It had only been a clinical diagnosis since 1976, and this was 1979. Mm -hmm. I just know that every time I binged and purged, there was a feeling of peace that would come over me and into my stomach for 15 seconds, 20 seconds, where I felt normal and I felt the next day everything was gonna be okay. The next day I would be accepted. The next day I would be loved. But that 15 seconds, kind of like a cocaine high, if 15 or 20 seconds goes away, and what, what replaces that in my gut sweeping in is shame, all-encompassing shame of engaging in an act that I didn't understand. And, but it felt inherently shameful. Guys just don't do that. I don't know why guys just don't do that, uh, but it's, it's a feminine thing. There's kind of a visceral thing that I've never... I've never even tried to really describe, you know, the kind of feeling of there's, there's, you're on your knees and there's a smell and there's a tactile sense. And, um, and there's kind of a, a, a for me, there was kind of a, a, a ritualness to the cleansing. And sure. There are, there are certainly, uh, aspects of obsessive compulsive behavior to it. Um, w- w- were there times where you felt um, driven to do it, but you were in public and that you were concerned that, or you were in a public place and that you were concerned that it was, you were going to be discovered, for example? Uh, sure. I mean, there are the feeling uh, it's, it's difficult to recover. It's a difficult thing to recover from. And, uh, the feelings are, I often had the feelings if I ate too much at a restaurant, uh, if I was drinking, it became much easier, uh, to engage in that behavior. Uh, there were times at Penn state in a pit law where, uh, I would be out in the bar and I would, uh, go out and engage in that behavior after leaving the bar before I went home in a, in an alley. Mm. or uh, something, you know, someplace where I could have uh, privacy at two in the morning. Sure. Um, when, when did you kind of come to terms with it? When did you know that this is, this is something that I need to get a hold of or I need to stop? It was a prog. It was a progress. Uh, I mean, you get old enough and you, we're, we're educated people and you understand that binging and purging is bulimia at some point. Yeah. But it was more the stigma and the shame that kept me from doing anything. So it was 2007 or 2008. I think the article is still on my blog mm-hmm. uh, from back then. I was going through a magazine. It may have been a People magazine. And there was an article about a model by the name of Caroline Reston. I believe she was a Brazilian model who ended up dying from complications related to anorexia. And they, I won't use numbers because it's, mm-hmm. it will trigger people. It's not appropriate. But she got very thin and, and emaciated. And there were uh, comments uh, 
online, this was the early days of online, from men and who were struggling. And I was thought to myself, wow, okay, I am not alone. And I think that was really the pivotal moment, reading an article about a female who lost her life to an eating disorder. And that was 2007 or 2008. And how did it relate to your getting sober? Uh, it was all integrated mm-hmm. because I, uh, I talked to my therapist about the drinking. It was uh, the talking about the binging and purging did not come at the same time about talking about the drinking because I didn't, I still did not feel like I could be vulnerable enough or there was enough trust. And I was still much too ashamed. Uh, now I'm in my forties and I knew I had an eating disorder and, uh, to talk about it. So that came a bit later. When, but I had already written about it though. I had oh. uh, my, my, the way I was going to introduce myself to the world was on my blog. And this was an old blog, but I migrated the article to my new blog, mm-hmm. uh, which says I am, uh, I suffer from bulimia. And it was, uh, a short blog and, uh, kind of one of those things where you write and duck and cover. Right. But there weren't as many people online in 2007 and eight. So, but the comments were very supportive. I think this was even on MySpace. I'd be, I posted it on MySpace before, before I was on Facebook. I'm still ducking covering. Um, I remember when, um, I got sober and, and I was a, I was, I was a, uh, prescription opioids mostly for those 10 years before I hit my bottom. Mm-hmm. And, I was seeing a, a uh, an analyst or a therapist, and I was no longer I no longer had the compulsion to uh, to binge and purge, and I was trying to describe it to him because I'd never described it during the whole time where I was seeing him while I was while I was um, getting high, and I said to him, "I don't have the compulsion anymore," and he said to me, "Well." Do you think that the uh, opioids were were making you nauseated? Do you think that that like one was fueling the other that way? And the more I thought about it, I used to walk around with this like low level nausea, like what people describe when they take a um, uh, um, like codeine, where they get nauseous. But I but I was or they get nauseated, but I was doing a lot more than coding. And, um, and it's, like I, it's so, it's so ancient, but I, I, I remember having that feeling sick and that was all part of it. It was part of the experience. Yeah, the mind, uh, the mind and trauma remembers, even when we're in recovery for me, Jeff, uh, I can tell you that, the uh, urges to binge and purge, my abstinence from bulimia became a much tougher battle than my abstinence from alcohol and cocaine. Um, One of the things I related to is when you were talking about your childhood and um, you're talking about being the overweight kid and and being bullied. Um, And so another thing I haven't talked about, I, I feel like I can talk to you about this stuff. Is that, is that I was a big kid, you know, I, I was, a, I was a heavy kid. I was a fat kid, but in various stages, but I was, you know, I'm, 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 I'm six, two now, but I was a big kid and there were stages in my life where I was the bully and I feel so much shame and remorse much more about having been a bully, then... Absolutely. Let me tell you a story that's in my first book. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, as, as, as you know, I was bullied severely, uh, overweight. I was fat-shamed at home and at school. Uh, I was physically assaulted because some kids thought some pants were too tight on me. There was a... I, I went on to Penn State, and I was sharing a dorm with, two other ki- with three other kids at, uh, at Penn State. And two of the kids would actually, what was kind of funny, they came to me and said, we'd like you to move because we want one of our friends. And uh, 
And and the the other guy was kind of a heavy set kid from San Diego who wore Hawaiian shirts, so we called him Hawaiian Dan. And I wrote about this in Shattered Image. I wanted to show the two roommates that I deserved to be there because in my mind they were popular. I bullied Hawaiian Dan without mercy. And I feel guilty about it. And my next day, I I don't know his last name. And I apologize. All I could do is I apologize to him in my first book. Mm. I became the bully. In my mind, the path to popularity and acceptance, whether from these kids or the girls, was to become the bully. At first, when I was in college, I, when I was in high school, I tried being the self-deprecating clown. And that didn't work. So now I'll become the bully, and I bullied this kid, and I feel terrible about it, and I try to make living amends. I don't know who it is, I, uh, and uh, other than Hawaiian Dan. And Hawaiian Dan, if, you were li- if, you, if you're watching this, I'm sorry. And I would uh, like to tell you in person that I'm sorry. And so I've been there. I understand. Isn't that crazy? Like, like the... the- these are the moments that somehow stay with us. Yeah, of course. Uh, bullying itself can be trauma, right? Mm-hmm. And you know what it shows, Jeff? It shows that we have a conscience. I thank, thank God for that one. The, um, another thing that uh, um, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about the book, but obviously it's, it's your life. But I just read yeah. the book in the last two days, three days. So it's, just, it's so palpable and so part of my so part of my life right now um i experienced some very similar things like trying to make the leap from college into law school and and not really feeling like i deserve to be there so can you talk about that a little bit and then i want to tell you something that happened with me and hope, hope sure and part. for me it was it wasn't about even i didn't feel i deserved to be there and i didn't want to be there it was the path of least resistance uh, to being able to repeat behavior, survival behaviors that had gotten me through Penn State. My four years at Penn State were defined by binging and purging, running 10 to 20 miles a day, uh, getting uh, getting drunk most nights of the week, showing mm-hmm. up at class, hungover, or still intoxicated. And so, but to me, these were survival behaviors, the cycle, and I, I was a loner. So, in my mind, this was this is what got me through school. Yeah. And I had no vision of four years later or three years later. I was a criminal justice major. I wanted to be a police officer. That would have worked out well. <laughs> I'd have been the first guy in the evidence room trading out the Manitoba for the blow. But uh, I was just looking at survival, the, my, the finger in front of my face. So I'm sitting in the placement office. At Penn State, leafing through police officer jobs, and there are two guys sitting next to me who are from Pittsburgh, where I grew up, born and raised, and they're talking about taking the LSATs, the law school admission test. And I stop turning the pages and I listen. Mm-hmm. And I hope you can't hear my cats going over there. No, that's all right. I turn off the phone, but I can't stop the cats. <laughs> uh, but I'm listening to them, and it occurred to me that. The perfect thing for me to do is take the law school admission test, not because I wanted to be a lawyer. I didn't know any lawyers. My family, there are no lawyers in my family. Uh, I never had any conversations with any lawyers. But what I did know was law school was three years. And I can go to law school and I can binge and purge. I can run 10 to 20 miles a day. I can drink. And I can engage in this and and I can isolate. Self-isolate, and I can engage in the exact same behaviors that got me through four years at Penn State. Yeah. And Jeff, that made perfect sense to me sitting in that room. That is why I went to law school. Um. So what what happened when now now you get to law school, and it's orientation or it's first day? I don't quite know what what went on at Pitt, but you're looking around. And there are a lot of people who want to be there. Probably, yeah. probably ninety nine percent of the people who are there who want to be there. And you feel like what? 
I walked through the double doors at Pitt Law in Oakland, and everyone's milling around the lobby waiting to be let into the big classroom for orientation, for one-hour orientation. And I'm looking at all the people, and, and I'm projecting out. I'm projecting out to the girls. They all look at me and think I'm a fat pig, as I was called so often. The guys think I'm a moron. I have, uh, and, and the irony about all of that is, as I projected all these things from kids who are just worried about their own stuff, exactly, right? worried about whether they're going to make it, worried about what's going on in their homes, their whatever mental health issues they have, and all that stuff. And it made perfect sense to me as I projected all this out that I should be in law school because it's the same at, at Penn State. So. I justified with this projection that they're all thinking these things about me, that I can engage in these behaviors continuing on for three years. That's what went through my mind walking into the lobby of Pitt Law day one. And, um, and so when you, when you were saying your first class, was it Socratic method there? Yes. Pitt? And so, did you feel like you were like ready? Were you, someone well, who did your I homework? Never, I was never, I never felt ready. I felt, what do I do? What do I need to do to not get kicked out? Right? Mm. Because I don't have, I just don't care. And that is, and that's literally how I, I just didn't care. The, the best example I can give of my three years of pit law was my first year, my first year civil procedure class. I had been out all night drinking. I had, uh, I didn't know where my, my books were. And I show up in class and I was still, I was, I was hungover, still maybe intoxicated a bit. And I smelled because I hadn't changed or showered. My, it's assigned seats and my two seatmates, I'm sure, are, dude, just go home and take the L. Uh, <laughs> and I'm trying to, and Jeff, I'm trying to get as small as I can in my seat, right? Yeah. Like, don't call me, don't call me. And there's a, there's a, he writes back when we use blackboards, he's writing this jurisdictional thing. Uh, uh, hypothetical on the blackboard. I think it was a Pinoyer v. Neff. Yeah, I remember that. And and I'm and I'm just as small as I can. Mr. Cuban, oh, what do you think of this? I said, Professor, I'm I am sorry, I'm not prepared. I don't have my books. Please can you go on to someone else? And there's a pause, the pregnant pause. Yeah. Where I'm hoping, okay, he's going to go on to someone else. Don't call me. Don't call me. Well, Mr. Cuban, when you say you're not prepared, are you not prepared to answer my hypothetical? What if I phrase it this way? Are you prepared now? Oh, professor, no. <laughs> I'm not, not prepared means not prepared. Okay, now he understands and is really going on to someone else. Well, Mr. Cuban, oh, and I uttered an expletive, expletive under my breath. And my voice projects, and I stood up and bolted out of the room. That personified my three years at Pitt Law. I was not a good student, as you might imagine. Mm -hmm. I graduated by the skin of my teeth. I still have reoccurring nightmares of being at graduation, standing in the line, finally getting up to get my diploma from the dean. And he pulls it, pulls it back and goes, psych, you didn't graduate. And he, and he goes, you didn't graduate, you didn't graduate. And I wake up grabbing for my diploma. Oh and my the God. irony of that is, Jeff, is I was so ashamed and so apathetic, I didn't even go to graduation. Just mail it to me. <laughs> oh. You know, here's the story. Again, I, I don't think I've ever told this to anybody. The, it was orientation in the summer of uh, 1979. That's when I started law school in 79. And um, I had um, been on like a four-day drinking binge. Um, and uh, I showed up at orientation completely hungover. And I couldn't even focus. And it was in like the biggest classroom at New York Law School. And all the 1Ls were there. And I had read the paper chase, the... The summer sure. before, and yeah, right, so and I was, and in fact, I noticed one of the chapters of your book is chasing paper or something like that. Yeah, yeah. So, I, so I caught the reference. My, my homage to Scott Turo. Yeah, absolutely. Whoever wrote the paper chase. Yeah. Um, oh, there was a book One L that came out at about the same time. Remember? Well, the paper chase is based on One L, isn't it? Oh, I don't. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, because the paper chase is the series. 
I believe it's based on one L. I could be wrong. Uh, I, I I don't remember. Yeah. But um, so what happened was um, we got in this class, and uh, oh, there was one speaker after the next speaker, and one of the speakers was the dean of admissions, and he's he's this little guy, maybe five foot six or five foot seven, and and he stood in front of the uh, of the of the class of of all the one Ls. And he said that he's doing his doctorate thesis, and his doctorate thesis is is to compare the uh, or for his doctor's thesis, he wanted to give out a test, and it would take about two hours to take. Um, and the test he wanted to be able to compare it to LSAT scores from admissions, and it would be completely optional. You don't have to take it, but he. Then he hands it out, and I am I am so hungover I can't even think. And he hands it out, and it's on my desk. And you know I'm in this little kind of student desk. And instead of doing the test, I I reached into my backpack and I took out a Thor comic book. I'm reading Thor. I'm just minding my own business, and. He came over to me and he like looked down on me and he, he looked down at me and he said to me, what are you doing? Now, this is in front of the whole 1L class. What are you doing? And I looked at him and I said to him, I'm reading Thor. And he said, well, why aren't you taking the test? I said, because you said it was optional. And he said, well, what does optional mean to you? And I said, I think it means not mandatory. And with that, he poked me and I stood up and I was towering over him. And in front of the entire one hour class, he said to me, he said to me, if this is your attitude, I may have made a mistake admitting you to this law school. That was my introduction to law school. Yeah. And it had everything to do with lack of self-esteem and and the fact that I was hungover. And to this day, I can't even believe that I did that. Going to, yeah, keep going over. I, I'm listening to your story and it was optional. <laughs> right? You know, I, I didn't, I don't, you, the, 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 uh, the uh, hungover, being hungover aside, I, I'd be, you were in the right. It was optional. Enjoy Thor. I, I read your book, and that's what I'm thinking about as I'm reading your book. Th that story from 40 years ago. It's crazy. Yeah, and uh, and 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 I, I, I mean, I, I I have. It wasn't a good experience, but it was of my. Uh, it was my. It was of my journey, mm -hmm. and at, at the time, deans of students really we weren't. I mean, we weren't talking about. I mean, there was a drinking, there was a drinking culture exponentially worse than it is today, right? Back, in the, yeah. back mm -hmm. when I was there. At Pitt Law, we had uh, uh, bands and hard alcohol and, and beer in the student lounge uh, occasionally. It just wasn't a big deal. And uh, you had all the uh, bar review stuff, you know, the, the bar review, right, where you go to the different bars. But uh, the drinking culture was, was, was there, and it's not the same as it is today, although there is still a, a to some extent, although we have a lot more awareness, and law schools look at these things much differently. But we didn't have a dean of students uh, back when I was in law school, and dean of students are traditionally the point person for yeah. students who are struggling with mental health issues. So it was a different time. It was a different time. And I look at Pitt Law now, and they're doing incredible things mm -hmm. uh, to help students. They have a student wellness fund uh, to uh, help students who need counseling or, or things like that. And so, and so do the bar associations. They're, yeah. They're, they're, yes. And I, I knew nothing of uh, lawyers helping lawyers or, uh, you know, and, and uh, when I got to Texas and I was struggling with cocaine and alcohol, uh, we had the, uh, the Texas Lawyers Assistance Program was in mm -hmm. its infancy. I'm now on their advisory board. And so you don't know these things. I didn't know any about any of this stuff. And but here's the difference, Jeff. I wouldn't have wanted it regardless. I wouldn't have wanted it yeah. regardless. Mm -hmm. Someone told me you can go to TLAP, Texas Lawyer System. I said, why? 
I'm enjoying my blow. I'm enjoying going out. So I, I, I didn't want it. What, so what, what's with the, the migration, the family migration to Dallas? Like it, it feels like you had a very tight knit family and everyone's, everyone's in Pittsburgh and then everybody moves to Dallas. I don't know if your parents moved to Dallas or not. Well, the, it started, uh, Mark, my brother Mark moved to Dallas in probably 80 or 81. He went to Indiana and that was kind of the thing. It was the oil boom times and Dallas was growing. And then my brother Jeff, younger brother Jeff, uh, followed him there and ended up going to, uh, Southwest Texas State and then getting his, or whatever it's called now, and getting his master's at the University of Texas in psychology. And my experiences in Pittsburgh just were not anything that I wanted to, that would keep me there, right? At the time, I had a very difficult relationship with my mother, although we have a great relationship today. Uh, I had no, I didn't, had no options. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't like the interview boards were uh, full, had my name on them. Uh, for jobs, and I didn't care. I didn't even care. So, what was I going to do? I'll move. I'll I'll pick up and move and live with the people who I know love me unconditionally. My two so, brothers. So Mark and Jeff had moved first. Yes, and then I, 1986, uh, I took the bar. I took the PA bar exam, which I passed miraculously. I mm -hmm. don't know how. And then I uh, Labor Day, Labor Day, two hundred dollars to my name. I took a Trailways bus to Dallas and uh, Mark met me at the bus station and I moved in with Mark. Um, you, you write a lot about kind of middle child syndrome. Yes. Um, so, um, and how that kind of informed your, 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 your navigating the world um, and how Mark was the tall, charismatic jock and Jeff was the child of the family and got well, Mark was the charismatic entrepreneur. Jeff was the good looking jock. Mm -hmm. Oh, I see. Little child, uh, obese schlub. And what, what, what was that like? Was it, was it, was it real or was it like re self reinforced? I mean, well, here you have to remember we, we grew up in Pittsburgh at a time when. Uh, we're, we're all boomers, and we grew up at a time when cell phones were two cups attached to a string, mm -hmm. and social networking was playing dodgeball on the basketball court. And so it, it was a very different time. And to give you the differential, Mark was always entrepreneurial, thinking outside of the box. Even as a teenager, the local uh, our local newspapers, the Pittsburgh Press and the Post-Gazette, there was a printer strike, so they both shut down. Mark and his buddies, barely old enough to drive, went out to Cleveland, bought the Cleveland Plain Dealer, uh, returned them to Pittsburgh, and sold them on Pitts sold them on street corners in downtown Pittsburgh for twice what they pay. So you kind of knew what he was going to be. He saw needs and voids and filled them. Uh, my younger brother Jeff was a nationally ranked wrestler. The beer parties, uh, the prom, the dates, always always had a good looking girl on his side. Kind of a wild child. I was shy. I was reserved. I trended to isolation and I internalized anything negative said to me. And I was a heavy mm -hmm. kid as, and wore it as kind of a skin tight suit as who I was. And Jeff, unfortunately, I had a difficult relationship with my mother. And I'll tell you a bit about this, yeah. but I want to make it clear to everyone watching this podcast that I do not blame my mother for anything I mm -hmm. went through. Parents do not cause eating disorders. Parents do not cause addiction. There is a difference between cause and correlation. Mm -hmm. But things that go on at home can correlate with mental health issues later in life and correlate some. It'll happen to some. It won't happen to others. Uh, there was fat shaming in my household. My mom would come home from selling real estate. And I'd come home from school and I'd be eating Chef Boyardee ravioli out of the can with a spoon. Right. And she would see me doing that and say, Brian, if you keep eating like that, you're going to be a fat pig. These were the things my mother's mother said to her. These were the things my, my great-grandmother said to my gran grandmother. I come from an uh, Eastern European Jewish uh, family that had a very dysfunctional relationship around food. Mm -hmm. And uh, my mother had my, my mother's mom was uh, mentally and verbally abusive. My mom mm -hmm. said she was bipolar. 
and it was a very difficult relationship between those. And it runs downhill. I don't blame my mother for that. Uh, but as you might imagine, being a tween and not understanding psychology 101, mm. it caused a very difficult relationship for many years uh, that was about blame and us blaming each other for what went on. And I grew, I grew to just hate myself and look in the mirror and see just a fat pig. And I was also hearing the same rhetoric at school. And that all culminated one day in what I call the day of the gold pants. My brother Mark had given me a pair of shiny gold bell-bottom disco pants. This was the era of Saturday Night Fever and disco. Uh, the movie had just come out and the soundtrack. And Mark, Mark was teaching disco in downtown Pittsburgh. And he gave me these pants, and I love my brother, and I was so happy to get these shiny gold bell-bottom disco pants. But Mark wasn't a big guy. They fit Mark okay. I had to jump up and down, spray the water bottle. My butt looked like 15 cats back there. But I didn't care because Mark gave me these pants, and I was going to wear them to school every day. And I did, and the kids made fun of me. They fat taunted me. And I schluffed it off and made self-deprecating jokes. I'm walking home from school one day with these kids in uh, Mount Lebanon, PA, a suburb of Pittsburgh, about, it's a, a, about a mile from the school to my house. We're walking on the sidewalk. I'm wearing my shiny gold bell-bottom disco pants. These kids start making fun of them. And then they took it a step further. They start pulling at them, tearing at them, and physically assaulted me, tearing the pants off me into shreds and throwing them out in the middle of a busy street. Down in my Fruit of the Loom tie whiteies my tube socks, my kids' tennis shoes, my Pittsburgh Pirates t-shirt and ball cap. And uh, they went on like they had done the funniest thing ever, slapping each other on the back. I walked out in the street and picked up all the shreds I could and walked back to the sidewalk, placed them over my fruit of the loom, tidy whitey private area and waddled home. People gawked, no one stopped. I got home, nobody, my, the house was empty and mm. I tiptoed down the stairs to the basement. Yes, in Pittsburgh, we, there are no, there's no such thing as basements in Dallas. Yeah. Everyone in the East knows about basements. Mm -hmm. You talk about basements in Dallas and they think you're from Mars. <laughs> but uh, the house was quiet and I was thinking that even a squeak in the stair would alert the entire world, a squeak in the wooden staircase. Yeah. I was a fat pig who couldn't stand up to bullies. And I hid those pants in the trash barrel hoping that I would also be hiding my shame yeah. and it would never be brought up again. Mm -hmm. I would never tell anyone, but that's not how trauma works. That's not how shame works. Yeah. They both remember, they both thread through lives when not dealt with and impact many lives in many different ways. Mm. Uh, impact me differently and impact you differently. And that was kind of a bright line moment for me, thinking that I was this fat pig who was never going to be loved yeah. by his mother. Uh, who loved me dearly, but was dealing with their own mental health issues uh, by, I would never have a date. I would never get married. I would never kiss a girl or go to the prom. And so I kept it to myself. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's a, it's a big burden for. Shame is a big yeah. burden for anyone. Um, why don't you set up the story? Um, the story I read to my wife was, um, I I think it was the egg McMuffin. Is egg McMu egg McMuffin story? What 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 were you eating when you got out of your friend's car? Oh yes, uh, I I had been I, we had been to a nightclub in Dallas, mm -hmm. and I was running to the bathroom uh, every five minutes, sniffing up a storm, and I'm, my nose is running, and I'm getting locked on, and I'm I'm talking to this girl at this table with my friend, and it, and I'm spitting on her. <laughs> And just being the most loathsome, you know, cocaine addicted douche there is in the bar. Yeah. And we finally, it's two in the morning. He drives me home. We go to this, we go to McDonald's, which is right across the street from the place I was living at the time. And I buy, I think it was six or seven egg McMuffins. And he drops me off and I have my bag of egg McMuffins and I have one in my mouth. I'm eating it as I get out. He pulls away and boom. Two seconds after I step out of the car, I'm suddenly airborne. This car had hit me at the at, at the uh, quadriceps and flips me up over the hood. I don't know where it came from. I land on the street, and I'm wearing this white polo shirt buttoned down. 
that is suddenly turning red, mm. all the cuts and the bruises. They get out of the car. The girl's looking down at me. I remember saying, what did you do? What did you do? You ran out in front of us. The guy shows, and I'm laughing. I'm, I'm high on cocaine, and I'm oh. laughing my ass off at this, even though my shirt is now red yeah. with blood. And the guy comes up beside her and uses the B word and says, get in the car, B word. Next thing I know, they're gone. And I'm lying on the street. And this guy comes out from a, an apartment across the street. Yeah. And he says he's a paramedic. And he, and I said, he says, are you okay? And I said, yeah, I think I'm okay. It turns out I had uh, broken a couple ribs. Oh. But uh, he says, you can't go to sleep because you could have a concussion. I smoked Paul off his paramedic all night. Mm-hmm. And then uh, that was Saturday. Sunday came and my chest started hurting more and more. Mm-hmm. And then I went to work on Monday and I took a breath and just, ooh. And it was just intense pain. So I drove myself to the hospital and I had, I had fractured two ribs. Oh. And did you finish the egg McMuffins? I, I did not finish the egg McMuffin. They, they may still be lying in that street all these years. So w- one of the things I like about, about watching your, your lectures is that, and, I, and about your book too, by the way, was that there are actual lessons. And yeah. so you could, and, and it's kind of a, a, um, a Nora Ephron kind of approach where, where you stop the action and then you talk about the lesson. Or in your book, you actually have stories of some other people as well. Sure, which made it very difficult to sell that book. <laughs> hey, oh, oh, is that, oh, did you have to get the permission? What, what well, agent, literary agents don't like those kind of combination books. It's either a memoir or it's this or it's that. Yeah. And uh, this wasn't a, it has memoir aspects, obviously, because I tell my story. Yeah. But I also wanted there to be lessons from other people in the field which made it kind of a hybrid, which uh, made it difficult. So how did, so, so let, let, let's just go down that path for a second. Because, so how did you wind up publishing the book? I mean, this is a, this, this is a, a very raw expose in a way of, of personal, well, personal growth. It was rejected by many agents, uh, who uh, in the, the ones who like they uh, uh, many of them like the uh, memoir part. They said, "Just turn this into a full memoir, and we'll take it." And I mm. was adamant that I was going to do it my way, even if it meant I had to self-publish. But I ended up finding someone who believed in it and found it and got it traditionally published. Uh, so when when you when you speak when you when you're asked to speak in front of uh, law firms or uh, uh, um, on your on the on the homepage of your website, you have a little clip from uh, the Ox- the Oxford uh, the Oxford, Oxford Center. Oxford Center. Um, how how do you lean into the lessons? How because obviously it depends on the lessons. If I'm speaking at an AMLAW firm, an AMLAW 100 firm, uh, it's going to be a different approach than if I'm speaking at the Oxford Convention, mm-hmm. where everyone in there under- uses the lingo, and you don't have to really worry about stigma. Uh, because everyone in there has been in the rooms, right? So, and, I, and so you can use certainly you can use lingo that I wouldn't use if I'm speaking to a uh, AM law firm or or a law firm or even a bar convention, uh, a, a state bar convention or things like that. So it just depends. You have it's, know your audience. Know your audience. Do um do people come up to you afterwards and 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 say to you, um, you know, um. You, that I'm glad you that you brought this to light. Uh, uh, giving me giving me permission to talk about it. Absolutely, especially with regards to body image, mm-hmm. because people are used the the discussion and storytelling surrounding addiction has become whether it's alcohol or whatever, yeah. right? It has become normalized. Mm-hmm. Normalized body image, especially male body image, is not normalized. So I'll either get someone pulling me aside. And, or I'll get emails. And they are m- more about body image and eating disorders than about uh, addiction. Um, I certainly connected it w- um, 
on that level for sure. Um, and so what, what do you do with these people? I mean, do you, are you a, now currently, are you a uh, for, your former practicing lawyer? Yeah, now? I, have not, I, have, I have actually passed the recovery coach uh, certification here in Texas, but mm-hmm. uh, I don't charge to help people come to me. Uh, I'm not in, I, the only thing I'm an expert in, and this is a whole nother discussion about people in recovery who think that gives them a credential to uh, give advice they shouldn't give. Sure. Uh, my only expertise is my story in my journey. Mm-hmm. We can talk about shared aspects of that. Mm-hmm. And then I'll refer you to people in the know, if you want me to, who are treatment providers, who are psychiatrists and psychologists with an expertise in the field that I do not, that I do not claim to have. I claim to be no have no expertise other than my journey. Um, um, I've, I've been hesitant to, uh, uh, talk about your brother Mark at all. No, please do. It's part of my story. It's part of my journey. But, but here's the part that as I was reading your book, this is the part I related to a few months ago on Howard Stern. He was in, uh, after Eddie Van Halen passed away, he was interviewing, uh, Wolfie, uh, Eddie Van Halen's son. And Wolfie was telling the story about that he went to his dad and he, when he was young and he said, I want to I wanna learn guitar. Will you teach me how to play guitar? And Eddie was thrilled. And he said to Wolfie, he said, yeah, of course I'll teach you how to play guitar. And he, I guess he had bought Wolf, Wolfie guitar. And they sat down and and he started to give Wolfie a guitar lesson. And as Wolfie said to Howard Stern, he said to him, he was Eddie Van Halen. <laughs> like there was there was no s- shutting this guy down. I mean, with the things he was, I was a beginner, and the things he was showing me are that nobody can play because he's Eddie Van Halen. Nobody can play like him. Um, it just struck me that that as close as you are with someone like like your brother, it can also kind of be intimidating or it could be a trigger or it could be. Uh, Okay. There are some good questions and issues within that. I get asked all the time how Mark's fame uh, played out with my, with my struggles. Yeah. Very. And I point out quickly that, I had an eating disorder. I struggled with drugs and alcohol long before Mark became internationally famous, right? Mm-hmm. So you can't say that there's a connection there. There's not. There's not. I was responsible for my self-image, uh, not Mark. So here's what happened was when Mark became international, when he became Mark Cuban, right, Shark Tank, and all the other stuff. He was always well-known in Dallas yeah. locally. But when he uh, expanded, all of a sudden, I could, uh, all of a sudden, I was getting approached by girls half my age. People were giving me free cocaine and free drinks. Mm-hmm. Didn't have to wait in line at any nightclub. And I had no self-image. I had, I had none. I hated myself. So I thought to myself, okay, if I don't know who I am, I can take advantage and receive all this artificial adulation that has nothing to do with me and prop myself up that way. And I took full advantage of that and became one of the biggest D-bags in Dallas. I'm not ashamed to say, but that had, that's not Mark's fault. I was responsible for my own self-image and for my own identity, which I lacked when he became internationally famous. So I took, I could be Mark Cuban's brother and get all of this stuff, right? Get all of this stuff that in my mind, uh, I wasn't able to get it's just Brian Cuban. The dates, the 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 kind words, the you know, all those things that I wasn't able to get as the teenage or the tween Brian Cuban. The and and, and, and so I was just the the self-loathing was just all encompassing. So wh- Brian, where 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 are you now in terms of 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 
a, a person in recovery? Do you do you, do you go uh, daily? Do you go often? Are you are you talking about the meetings? Uh, yeah. No, we're, we're. I mean, we're. I'm very careful. I'm 60 years old, and I'm very careful uh, right now. Even though we're rounding the corner, uh, when I'm, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not vaccinated. So I've done I've done online meetings, and there's mm-hmm. in the rooms. You know, the site in the rooms, and people ask me to do speaker meetings, and I do that. I do that, but until uh, until I'm fully vaccinated, I won't be walking into a room, and that's yeah. just my personal choice. Yeah. So for, for anybody watching this, who's, uh, um, um, in early recovery or in recovery at all, um, the pandemic and, and, um, our ability to have, have a community, a recovery community has been greatly affected by, and, um, I don't know about you, but I found a lot of comfort in zoom meetings and I've, it's, I mean, it's that uh, people ask me, uh, People ask me that question, and it is what it is, right? Is is it? Do I believe it's as good as sitting in that smoky room that I've sat in for many years, where you know the same stains and the familiarity of the same stains and and uh, and two day old coffee to use stereotypes, but it's it's not a stereotype, but it's true. And <laughs> you know, yeah, the, the 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 donuts and all this stuff is. Do I think that's better? Yes, uh, but we are. Zooming, and that's how it is. Will I return to the rooms when I believe that I can do so safely for me and safely for others? Yes. Um, what What do you think the takeaways are from your story? Because because there are really unique aspects to your story, um, or at least it feels that way. Well, but but then has a, we all have different stories, right? I remember my first day in the rooms. I'm sitting there listening and I'm comparing stories. Oh man, yeah, that's bad. Oh, yeah. Why, why are you here? Oh yeah. Oh. And, and I'm thinking, you know, what we did talk about is what we when we uh, when I traded 2006 Dallas Mavericks championship tickets for to my cocaine dealer. And I'm thinking here, and I'm thinking nobody here has done that. I'm unique, right? But uh, uh, the t- the takeaway, uh, the people, the, the what I want people to take away is that community is. Community and recovery is important. Compassionate community, whether it's in the rooms. I mean, I'm, my path is abstinence, Jeff. Mm-hmm. But if you watch what I do and watch what I post, there are many paths to recovery. Mm-hmm. I'm not about judging paths to recovery. If you tell me that standing on your head is going to keep you sober or what, however you define recovery, right? If we look at the SAMHSA definition of recovery, it says nothing about sober. Yeah. It talks about leading a full, happy life, mm-hmm. all these different things. So we community, compassionate community is what I want people. Get your community. Rely on your community. If you don't have a community, reach out to me, reach out to whoever and start creating it because that wh- whether it's in the rooms or smart recovery or whatever you do, uh, group therapy, it's community that binds us mm. and the storytelling within that community that binds us and gives us permission and gives other people permission to share and be vulnerable. And of course, another message is recovery is possible. It takes longer for some than others and uh, not everyone recovers, but uh, it, can, it can happen. And I, another, one of the more important messages I want people to take from my book is mm. There is no such thing as rock bottom. Okay. There is recovering. We don't rock bottom to me is one of the worst terms ever invented because it implies that we have to have the worst happen to us in our lives, the worst tragedy to begin recovery. And for some people, that's the way it is. Let me give you an example of how it didn't work for me. In 2005, my brothers came into my house. There was a, 40, a 45 automatic on my nightstand. There were drugs everywhere. I was minutes from using it and taking my own life. They took me to a psychiatric facility where much to their chagrin, I knew what to say and they weren't able to hold me. Uh, I wasn't a danger to myself. Others, my, the lawyer and me kicked in. That wasn't quote unquote rock bottom for me. People think that's it. You're, you're going to, you know, you're going to come. No, I went right back out and the moment, my, I prefer to call it my recovery tipping point, was my second trip to that facility 
after a blackout. Yeah. So you just don't know. And I don't like the term rock bottom. Let's, let's use compassionate community to help people and lift up people to recover at the highest point possible mm-hmm. before, you know, before it gets there. Did, um, I can't remember now um, in the book, did, did, um, did you spend any time in jail? I mean, we, uh, yeah, I was arrested for uh, DWI. Yeah. Right. And how long, what, what was that process like? Oh, I mean, it was, I had been, I had just gotten off my first divorce mm. and I was out, I was at this bar in downtown uh, Dallas uh, called the Ginger Man and I was drinking and blowing and going, right? Mm-hmm. My normal state of affairs and I lived maybe two miles or three miles up the highway. Yeah. And I remember my friends telling me you shouldn't be driving and I'm like, I'm okay, I'm okay. I get in the car and I'm speeding up. It's called the Dallas North Tollway. Mm-hmm. And I pass a state trooper. And I'm literally at the exit to my house. Just like you hear. Woo, 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 woo. Pulls me over. And he gets me out of the car. Mm-hmm. And he, he makes me do the alphabet backwards, touching my nose. And I'm mm-hmm. Z. F. Z. Missing my nose. And, and you're, under, you're under arrest, suspicion of DWI. It was this. It was this older state trooper and i'm still thinking i'm not drunk we're driving down there like every drunk right it doesn't matter if you're a lawyer and i'm still thinking no i'm fine no i said to him when i at the time it was you had to blow a one oh that's how long ago it was yeah i said when i blow under a one oh you're going to take me back to my car right <laughs> he's laughing he said that's not going to happen dude but sure if you do that we'll take you back we get down there and i blew a one one so as, as was my right to make the state prove their case, I pled not guilty, mm-hmm. presumption of innocence. And the day of trial, and I stayed home for two weeks, not drinking, never going to drink again. I'm crying. I yeah. saw my father crying. I showed up at work thinking I'm going to get fired and not realizing, you know, that that's just not how it, it was. Oh, oh, oh this, is, this is when your boss told you he didn't have a problem with it, right? Said, get a lawyer. Yeah. But but that's what my younger brother said too. Get a lawyer. It's, yeah. it's people. Not everyone automatically grasps recovery and addiction. Right. Grasps life. Mm-hmm. What's going on in life? Mm-hmm. And so I pled not guilty. It finally gets to the day of trial. It's a bench trial. We asked for a bench trial. I show up in my suit, waiting. My lawyer Rich comes out of the district attorney workroom where they all gather yeah the defense lawyers go in there for their plea bargains mm-hmm. and whatever during the day and he's holding this piece of paper he said happy birthday early and uh i said what are you talking about and it was case they dismissed the case they dismissed the case it, the state trooper who i was older had apparently retired and moved back to wherever he was from texas and he wasn't showing up to testify and prove up the having to prove up the breathalyzer and testify mm. against Brian Cuban. So they had to dismiss the case. And I said, thank you, Rich. And he said, don't thank me. And he points towards the district attorney workroom. Thank them. He was kidding. I opened up the door and I said, thank you. They looked at me like they wanted to throw me off the third floor of the courtroom. He pulled me back and said, I was joking. Get out of here before they refile. And and. And you had no idea whatsoever, right? You're just like in your in your head. Yes, and that was in 1990, and I learned no. Le- I for you know for, I had the two weeks of remorse, never drink again, remorse, and I was right back out. And uh, did you ever drink and drive again? All the time, all the time. Drink and drive, drink and drive. When uh, there were times, it, it's. I mean, I, I I'll say this, and people should not think that I'm trying to minimize the damage that I could have called. Yeah. There were times when I said, okay, I'm really going to blow it out tonight. So I'm going to get a cab. I'll call a cab. This is before Uber. Yeah. And when Uber came, uh, so, well, I was sober when Uber came around, but there were times I did that. Uh, but I, uh, there were so many times I could have caused so much pain and heartache. So what's your sobriety date? April 8, 2007, coming up on 14 years. Wow. That's wonderful. Thank you. Wonderful. Well, congratulations. Thank you Brian, Brian um, I would love to invite you to uh, speak to our uh, white-collar support group. 
Of course, happy to. And um, actually, on uh, March 29th is our 250th meeting. All right, all right. <laughs> so it's it's a little strange that that um, you know uh, people who've been prosecuted for white collar crimes. It's a it's a community the same way the recovery. Yeah, community. There are, there's communities. There's communities within yeah. communities. And so uh, yeah, but I, I'd yeah. love I'd love for you to speak to speak to all of us because I would be honored, and because I, I I don't know that I think that we're the lucky ones who are in recovery because we have a community and we have a program we have a way of life that that we ascribe to and that we have people whose shoulders that we can stand on have come before yeah. us. That's an interesting perspective because. Uh, being involved in advocacy and, uh, you know, I, I pay a lot of attention to policy. We, I, I'd argue that people who uh, use heroin have community or have a community too. So it just depends on the community, right? Yeah. Uh, lawyers who can uh, get snort blow, you know, every week and have a community. So it's the kind of community that matters. Yeah, amen. And, amen. And, what's the, and the type of support that's going on within that community. Amen. Well, you've been a you've been a wonderful, wonderful guest. I can't I, I'm, I I can't wait to have some offline conversations with you and 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 cry my eyes out because I have I have things I want to talk to you about. I can't. Jeff, I am honored to speak with you anytime. Brian, thank you so much uh, for being with us, and uh, and God bless you. Thank you, and I will talk to you soon. Have a wonderful weekend. Thank you. You too. Take care. Okay. Thank you for joining us on White Collar Week, sponsored by Progressive Prison Ministries. You can learn more about us on our website, prisonist.org. That's prisonist, like feminist. And please remember to rate, review, and share this podcast so that families suffering in silence can find us if they need us. See you next time.